Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Matt. If you are a visitor here, new here, welcome. Along with Tim, want to welcome you here. Uh, as Tim mentioned, we are in the book of Matthew today. Uh, that's because we're taking a slight detour. Uh, we're actually in a series in Luke 22. Uh, but today we're going to uh, be doing sort of a, a one-off uh, message on the topic of fasting. And uh, that's because uh, in a few weeks, uh, we are going to have a week of fasting and prayer as a church. Uh, as elders, we, uh, we think this will be uh, good for a number of reasons, which we will get into, uh, but uh, I thought it'd be best to start with uh, looking in the Bible and trying to understand what is fasting, why should we do it, all that kind of good stuff. And so for that, we're going to look to Matthew 9, uh, starting in verse 14. So as you turn there, uh, we, uh, let me pray first, and then we'll, we'll look into it. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that as a church, Lord, we know you lead us. As a church, Lord, we know that you have established us. Uh, Lord, apart from you, we have no hope and no power. Uh, we're thankful, Lord, that um, as we come here each week, we are reminded of your grace and your mercy. As we sing songs of, of how uh, you have worked, uh, Lord, uh, I pray it would stir us uh, to, to, to greater faith and greater worship. And Lord, I want to pray now as we turn our attention to the topic of fasting, to the practice of fasting. Lord, in the same way as a church, we would, um, we would want to know what you say about it, uh, what you call us to, uh, the, the value of it, Lord. And so I pray that, that this time would be helpful, Lord, for those brand new to church, perhaps. Uh, Lord, glad they're here, and I pray this would be instructive uh, for those of us, Lord, who've been walking with you for a while. I pray that this kind of a, of a discipline of fasting, Lord, we can see the value of it. And ultimately, Lord, we want more of you. And so I pray right now that we would uh, have open ears to hear from you and to be led in your ways. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can see the title of the sermon, Then They Will Fast. Uh, you're going to find it in the, in the text. We're going to get there in a moment. Um, but first, I just wanted to, so fasting, big, big picture, what, what is it? I think we have a sense that usually it has to do with, uh, you know, not eating food for a certain amount of time. Uh, interestingly, if you look through the world, through uh, different human cultures, even through history, what you see is that uh, human beings fast for all sorts of reasons. Uh, there, there are people who fast for health reasons, even today, the, this day. There's people who go on a cleansing fast or skip meals, and they say that there are health benefits. We, we see that. Uh, there are political reasons why people would fast. Uh, right now, I think still, there are women in the Iranian prison system that are fasting to protest the executions that are going there, the political, politically motivated, cruel executions. So there's a political reason. They want to affect some sort of change. There are lots of religious reasons to fast. Pretty much every religion... Uh, in the Islamic faith, right, there's Ramadan where you fast during the, during the day and then come together and eat in the evening. Uh, there's a Hindu, the Brahmins, they fast, have this extreme fast they go through in the First Nations, uh, different sort of tribes. There are fasting that are a part of it uh, in the Jewish culture. There's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which has fasting associated with it. So fasting, if you look at it from the big picture, seems to be just associated with human culture, that there's all sorts of different reasons why people fast. And so if we are wanting to know uh, what fasting is, uh, we should really be asking the question, what is uh, Christian fasting? Uh, what does it mean as followers of Christ to fast? What does God have to say about fasting? It's not just fasting in general, but the kind of fasting that we find uh, in the Bible. 
And so that's why we're going to turn our attention to Matthew 9, because it is a little window. It's not long, uh, but it's a time in Jesus' ministry where people ask him about fasting directly, and he responds. And so uh, we get some real uh, clear insights into, into what he has to say about it. So... Uh, Matthew 9, 14, I'm going to read it through, a little context, this is just Jesus in his ministry, he's walking around, doing his thing, healing people, preaching about the new kingdom, and then uh, you're going to see some disciples of John come to ask him a question, that's John the Baptist, that's Jesus' cousin, so they're friends, uh, but the disciples of John are noticing there's some differences between the way that, like fasting, there's some difference there, so here's the text. Uh, Then the disciples of John came to him, came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst. And the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. So that's our text. Uh, Obviously some things at the end, some imagery that we're going to unpack, but let's start with the question that they ask, right? This is a fair question. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Uh, Everyone who had seen Jesus's ministry would not be surprised by this question. Uh, Because if there's one thing he's known for, it it wasn't not eating, it was eating. Uh, He went to dinner party after dinner party. If you read through the Gospels, he's going to someone's house for dinner this night, another this night. He's he's eating and drinking a lot. In fact, uh, one of the criticisms that people make of him is that's all you're doing. Uh, We see this in Luke chapter 7. This is uh, uh, people work, this is what he sort of summarizes the criticisms uh, of the religious leaders. Luke 7. He says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. Remember John the Baptist in the desert, eating locusts, honey, right? Not quite a fast, but a little weird. Um, And they said of him, look, he's got a demon. Something's wrong with that guy. But the son of man, that's Jesus, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so this is the reputation that Jesus has. And so it makes sense that the disciples of John would come and say, what, what is the deal? And it's a great opportunity for Jesus to explain uh, from his point of view in light of the sort of his teaching, if you want to follow me, does fasting have a place? And if so, what is it supposed to look like? And so he does what he often does, which is to answer a question with a question. Verse 15, and he said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Which doesn't sound like an answer about fasting, uh, but for them it would have been clear because uh, mourning and fasting were closely connected in the Jewish culture. Uh, In fact, uh, you see this throughout the Old Testament, uh, that fasting is generally associated with times of, you could say mourning, um, of distress would be a good way to say it. That when there is something wrong, the people, they, they fast and they pray and they look to God for help. Uh, In fact, the very first uh, mention of fasting, probably happened before this, but is in Judges, and it is a time of distress, the time of civil war in the uh, the people of God, the Israelites. Uh, There's been this horrible crime committed, and they are at odds with the tribe of Benjamin. They're fighting each other. They're about to go into battle. But look at how uh, the, the state of mind, the state of heart is described. Judges 20, 26, 
Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Right? Clearly, they were in distress. Clearly, they, they're about to go into battle. You see this many, many times throughout the Old Testament. There's, there's a famine. There's a plague. There, people are going to attack. There, whatever it is, the response is, fast, pray, God, please help us. We, we need you. There's this great distress. Help us. Uh, think of Esther. In the book of Esther, right? They find out there's going to be a genocide, going to wipe out all of God's people. What is her response? Tell everyone to fast. I'm going to go see the king, but you need to fast. There's this clear association when things are going wrong, when it's trouble, you, you would fast. That is the right response. And so Jesus' point to the, to the disciples of John is, look, this isn't a time of distress. This isn't a time when everything's going wrong. This is a time of celebration. Why? Because the bridegroom is here. Now, again, for them, would have immediately made sense. Oh, I, I get what he's saying. That imagery was associated with God. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's this sense that the people of God were wedded to him, that he was the groom, that they were the bride. You see this in the book of Hosea. You see this. Here, here's um, Isaiah, just a little so we can see it. Isaiah 62.5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you as, as his people. And so now what Jesus is, is claiming is that identity. The bridegroom is here. I'm here. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Uh, this also was culturally very, uh, uh, very known that that's what would happen. The, the, the bride would be waiting in Jewish culture. She'd be with her entourage and then the bridegroom would come from somewhere else. They weren't sure exactly when. They'd be anticipating when he would come. Then there'd be a big feast and celebration. And Jesus is saying, you've been waiting Thousands of years for the Messiah. For the, I, I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. I am here now. It's not a time of distress. It's not a time to be fasting. It's time to be feasting. And that's what we are doing. My disciples are feasting because I am here. I'm with you. It's a joyful time. However, that's not all he says about fasting. Uh, the next part of the verse, right, says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So he's kind of saying right now is not a time to be fasting, but it will come. And, and it's not clear to them the sequence of what he's talking about, but as we look back, it's, it's really clear. Right? The first coming of Christ, the bridegroom, right, is what we see in the New Testament, right? the Christmas story, and then his ministry leading up to the, the mission that God had sent him, right? the Easter story, to go to the cross, to atone for sin. Uh, but then Jesus, he leaves. He leaves us his spirit. He's present with us spiritually, but physically he is He's removed from the earth. And so what, when Jesus says, the days will come, he means uh, right now, our days. When Jesus is not here physically. All the days in between the first coming and the second coming. And, and you see the consistency of the imagery because if you look at the book of Revelation, the second coming of Christ, uh, there is a grand celebration called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a big wedding feast. Why? Because... Because God the husband and his people are finally wedded together. We're in heaven. In heaven, there'll be no fasting. There'll be constant feasting. There'll be no distress at all. That's what we're looking forward to. But in between those two comings of Christ, there is distress, isn't there? We know there's distress. We know that even though the kingdom of God is now here, it's not here fully. 
right? We know that Satan and sin and death still, still plague the earth, still ravage the earth. We know as a church, we should know that we've been given a mission, but it's not yet completed. That there are many, many souls that still hang on the brink of eternity. So there's distress. There's reason for us to fast. They don't get it when Jesus is saying this, but we looking back, oh, we can see what he's saying. He's there on earth. No one should be fasting. But once he goes, it, it will be time. There will be many times when we go before the Lord like they did in the Old Testament saying, Jesus, God, I, I need, we need help. There's, there's trial, there's difficulty. There's things we want to see happen and, it's, and so we fast and we pray. Now, the thing to note, and this, ha- this is the last part of what he says, the thing to note is that like everything else in the universe, in our lives, the cross has changed fasting. Okay, the, the cross made an impact that refracted throughout all of humanity's lived experience, certainly for those who are his people, and, it, and it's also changed fasting, the way that we fast. And this is what Jesus is talking about. If you're wondering, why is he talking about wineskins and wine? What, what is he saying? This is what he's talking about. Let's look again. It's like a little mini parable. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth, a new cloth, and an old garment. Uh, it'll tear, right? This was obvious to them back then. You don't put new wine into an old wineskin. It's going to burst. Again, something they, they all knew. And what is he communicating? Well, that the new and the old, they don't work together very well. And remember, he's bringing the new covenant, right? S- same faith, but a clarity in terms of our relationship with God. So the new and the old... So what does he mean by this, that they don't, they don't go together? Well, you might think what he's saying is, look, back then we used to fast, but now I'm here and so we don't fast, right? It, it's changed. But of course, he just said, no, there will be a time we fast. So the newness isn't that there won't be fasting as followers of Christ, right? The, the newness is that there will be a new kind of fasting. So you can think about it this way. The old fasting, the fasting of the Old Testament, even the fasting actually of those around the world who don't know Jesus, that fasting, if you think about what's going on there, why are people fasting? They're fasting because there's something they don't have. They're fasting. If it's religious fasting, they want, they want the favor of, of the gods. Or in the Old Testament, they wanted God's favor. They wanted his deliverance. God, we need you. We're about to be attacked. There's a famine. We, there's something we don't have. Could you please bring help? Bring something that we need that we don't have. That's the old kind of fasting. The new fasting is different because it's rooted in a hope of something we already have. What what do we have? We have the saving, redeeming work of Christ on the cross. See, the cross makes all the difference because now as, as followers of Jesus, we're fasting, but we're fasting based on a triumph, a victory that God has already had over the things that that afflict us. Satan, sin, death have all been defeated. Jesus is alive. The grave is, is no worry for us. We're free from our sin. We're free from the oppression of the enemy. The spirit has come. So Christian fasting, in, in that we, are, we aren't longing for something we don't have, we want more of what we've already tasted. We want more of Christ. So, so here's, here's the first point. You see it there. It, it took a while to get here, but this is the first point. And just so you know, there's four points, so it's, it's gonna be rough. Um, <laughs> Christian fasting is about being fully satisfied by Jesus. That, that's, that's why we do it. That's what we're hoping for in it. That, that we, we've already tasted the goodness of Christ. How? In our forgiveness, in our faith, in seeing our sin, in believing he died for it. All the, it's all paid. That sweetness, we want, we want more of that. 
You can think of it uh, this way. Old fasting is like uh, being invited to a restaurant that you have not yet been to. And you're excited about going, but you don't, you don't know. It's supposed to be good, it's supposed to be great, but you're not, you're not quite sure. And so you're anticipating it, but you're, you haven't yet tasted it. But the new fasting, Christian fasting, is like going back to a restaurant where you had the best meal of your life. And you went away and just savoring it. And even now, as you're anticipating going, you're, you, you can sort of taste how good it was. And so in preparation, you skip breakfast, you skip lunch. It's easy. I don't want that junk. I don't want just bacon and eggs in my stomach. I can't wait for the food that's coming up. And so you're, you're depriving yourself of something, but in the process, you're savoring that which you've already had. That, that is the fasting that we do as Christians. It's a great book on fasting uh, by John Piper, helped me a lot, called Hunger for God. Here's a quote. Here's how he describes this new fasting. He says, the newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we've tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. The new fasting, the Christian fasting, is a hunger for all the fullness of God, aroused by the aroma of Jesus' love and by the taste of God's goodness in the gospel of Christ. It's about stirring our affections for Jesus, the one who truly satisfies. Now, the next question, though, is, okay, that sounds great. Like, I, that I, I want. But how exactly does skipping lunch bring me that? Like, what, what dynamic is at work so that me not eating, for example, there's other kinds of fasting, but not eating, how does it, do that? Well, uh, the next two points are a bit sort of practically about what fasting can do within us, like personally. So here's the first thing. Christian fasting, one of the, the good things about it is that it reveals our heart. It, it reveals, and it does this in a few different ways. Here's another quote. Uh, Richard Foster says this, uh, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside of us with food and other things. A great way to figure out if there's any idolatry in your life is to think about the things that might be idols and then to take a break from them. And if you're wondering whether that video game has got a bit of a hold on you, we'll just say, I'm not gonna, but I'm not gonna play it for a week and see what happens. See what happens to your heart. See what happens to your thoughts. If you're wondering whether, uh, you know, scrolling uh, on whatever, uh, social media or something has kind of gripped you a bit, then just try not to do it. It will become clearer to you. Your response, your yearning, your, your, if, you, if you end up sneaking it, boy, I couldn't even make it for an hour. Maybe this is a thing, right? You wouldn't know it really unless you stop trying to do it. So it's clarifying. It brings insight into the nature of your heart, the things that have maybe gripped your heart more than we would like. That's the value of, of fasting. And food can be part of that. It can be lots of good things, right? Food is good. Uh, it's, it's meant to sustain. It's a good thing. But even the good things can be things that grab a hold of us in ways that are unhealthy, unhelpful for our, for our faith. Uh, another thing that fasting can do is it, it helps us to see the truth about what is inside of us. What, what Richard Foster sort of said there about um, you know, the things, we cover up what's inside us with food. I think that's... Uh, very true. We probably don't realize the extent to which our emotional and psychological equilibrium, like just whether we're in a good mood, um, is tied to what we've eaten or not eaten. 
That's why we have uh, words for this. We have uh, comfort food, right? It's food that brings us comfort. Why kind of comfort? Emotional comfort somehow, right? Eating these chicken wings. I don't know what it is, but I feel better about my life, myself. What is it, right? We, uh, we have uh, hangry is a word we invented. When you're hungry and you get angry. Why? Because something about not eating, it just, what's going on there? Here's the thing. When you, when you fast, if you've gone through fasting, you, you see the dynamic more clearly. You wake up, you're used to, maybe some of us don't eat breakfast, but a lot of us do eat breakfast. You're kind of filled up. You go through the day, you have your mid-morning snack, you have your, your lunch. I always look forward to lunch, right? You're working hard. Man, I can't wait. I always make sure I got a little treat in there so I can really feel good. I feel good for the afternoon. If I don't have that, emotionally, I kind of dip, right? I... I, I forget, oh, I'm going to, oh, I'm not eating today. Oh, and then all of a sudden, why, I'm not feeling good. Why am I not feeling good? What, there's, there's doubts that creep up. There's, a, there's an emotional kind of quality that comes about. And then when I go home, all of a sudden, it's weird, but on that, everyone is more annoying than they were the day before. I don't know what it is, right? How did you get so irritating? The truth, of course, is that we just, what were we doing? By eating, we t- keep propping ourselves up. Right? We grab a Snickers bar when we're feeling down, when we're, when we're whatever it is. It's not an ad for Snickers. I'm just saying, right? It's a healthy snack, right? It's satisfying. You know the commercial. Okay. The point is that all of this food, it masks over a lot of the whatever is in there. Unhappiness, self-doubt, frustration, anger. All of those things are, are covered over by the, not just food, but the things we do. We distract ourselves. Right? Why do we want to watch a show at the end of the day? Just to kind of get, a, I want to laugh a little bit. I want to feel good. Helps me to forget that, that maybe I'm, I'm not feeling so great. Fasting is, is humbling in a very good way. This is the language that King David uses. He, he says it this way in Psalm 69. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. He became aware of the areas of his heart where he needed to confess sin. He needed to, to repent. See, fasting is helpful because it brings the real issue of our faith front and center, which is quite simply, is Jesus enough for us? Is he satisfying? Can we make it through a day or a couple days without, without the other things that emotionally prop us up? Can we go for a week without eating any treats or whatever it is, or maybe food itself. The question that is then always on our minds, heart, is Jesus enough? And, and the beautiful thing, right? It's not just to test, just to expose. It, it, also, it also helps to strengthen our faith. It blesses us. And there's, there's the third point. The second and third kind of go together. It reveals our heart, but also Christian fasting, it strengthens our faith. It gives us opportunity to emotionally, psychologically, to, to lean into Christ himself and to draw nourishment and strength. We, we should note that Jesus, right, the, the master of the universe, he, he did not begin his earthly ministry until after a time of fasting, time of temptation. And we should note that the very first temptation had to do with food. It's fasting for 40 days, depleted in his physical form. And Satan comes and says, why don't you just... I mean, just turn the stone into bread. You've, you multiplied bread. You can do this. You do this all the time. Just do that. You're hungry. And what's his response? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
he's articulating the, the nature of our faith. That as Christians, as, as followers, as those who believe in God, we really believe this. Right? That it's not the physical things in this world that really sustain us. It's, it's the word of God. It's Christ himself. And these are words that are easy to say, but it's much harder to do. And in our fasting, we're doing it. We're, 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 we're actually walking it out. And it reminds us of who truly sustains us, who truly nourishes us and empowers us. And there's great benefit spiritually to our faith. You see the same dynamic um, at work in Paul's life. So Paul mentions a few times that he, he fasts, he kind of lists it in the, the things that he's doing. Uh, but there's one part, 1 Corinthians 9, where he's uh, speaking about him disciplining his body. And so it doesn't say fasting in particular, but I think in that category is all sorts of things that Paul is doing or not doing physically. And, and what we should see in here is that there's a connection between this physical thing he's doing with his body and spiritual benefit. So he, he says it this way, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, we Christians, an imperishable uh, wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he's saying, look, there's a connection, right? As a follower of Christ in this, this body that he's given you, as I, Paul, discipline myself, so not drinking more than he should, whatever it may, may be, right? Not eating too much uh, could be part of it. Fasting could definitely be part of it. He's saying, you know what this is like. If you're an athlete, you're going to discipline your body to achieve a goal, a physical goal. But he's saying as believers, we, we discipline ourselves physically, but the goal, the results are spiritual. You see it in the, the wreath, right? The, 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 the wreath that does not perish. It's speaking about the eternal blessings of God. He says, I'm doing this so that I won't be disqualified. How would he be disqualified? By falling into sin, by, by false teaching, by all sorts of um, uh, spiritual negligence, right? That he would not be able to, to be the one leading the church. Those are spiritual qualities. And he's saying, part of the reason I make sure that I don't get disqualified is I discipline myself physically. So what we should notice here is that there are some physical things we can do that actually benefit us spiritually. And fasting is, is one of them. That as we discipline ourselves, as we go without food for a day, or we skip meals for a week, or whatever it is, and we feel that sense of, oh, we dis there's some discipline there, but it brings about a sense of spiritual benefit because in the moment, what we're saying to ourselves is, is Jesus, you are enough. I don't, I don't need that meal to be content. I, I can go without the physical sustenance because I know I have you. And at the end of the day, all of that physical benefit is, does nothing for me spiritually. Now, we have to be careful here uh, because it is possible to fast and, and discipline our body out of sheer willpower. That's how people outside of the church would do it, right? You just kind of muscle it, you, you, you do it, and it brings about a certain benefit, right? A certain sense of accomplishment, perhaps. But Paul actually warns against this kind of behavior. Uh, and he does it in the book of Colossians. He, he calls it uh, like regulations, man-made regulations, precepts, things that you would do. You could uh, think of like, a, like a, a lifestyle of a monk, an aesthetic lifestyle where you go and you just put everything, all the physical world to the side. He's saying there, there could be some problems with that. So here's how he uh, explains it. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Right? 
these rules that people make up. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. He's saying it looks very good. Right? If you're fasting all the time, if you're denying yourself, giving a, a life of poverty, right? it seems like that, that's a really good thing. But in of themselves, he says, look at the end, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Why? Because it's just willpower. It's, it's just you in your own strength making it through a hard thing and the end result is what? That you, you, you think you can do it. That you're proud of yourself. You see, actually, it can puff us up in our pride, in our spiritual pride. Look at what I've done. Do you know what I just did? That's why there's so much language about fasting, for the most part, secretly. Right? Like on your own. Don't tell people about it. Because there's a real temptation when we're doing a hard thing to be like, man, it's so hard. I can't believe what I'm doing. And it, it does the opposite of what we want. It puffs us up. Rather than what fasting should do, which is to humble us before the Lord. I was uh, reading this uh, article about uh, motivational speakers recently, and I saw the same kind of thing. Uh, one of the guys, his name is Jesse Etzler, uh, and he's a you know, speaker on the circuit, but he organizes these events. He calls them events of endurance. Uh, one of them was called Everest 2929, and what they did is they, you, you could pay, you would go, and you would climb Mount Everest uh, virtually. So they had a hill, it was like in Virginia somewhere, it wasn't near Everest, and uh, you would just climb this hill over and over again, I think it was like 50 times, uh, and it would equal Everest. So in a sense, you were like climbing Everest. And the whole point was that you would do it, and they'd have coaches along the way up the hill. And as you couldn't make it, come on, you can do it, you can do it, yeah, you'd push yourself, and by the end, oh man, you feel good. About, about what? About yourself. Look what I did, right? So that is good to a certain extent, I guess if if you want to climb Mount Everest, but really, what do you get from that kind of experience? You get more of yourself, which, spiritually speaking, is not a benefit, just so we're clear. It's not good for us to, to think that we can achieve these great things through our own strength, because at the end of the day, we cannot achieve the things we need to. We, we cannot fulfill the law. We cannot atone for our sin. Only Christ can do these things. For us to receive the blessings of God, the benefit, we, we need to humble ourselves. And, and to be in a place where we receive the strength of God, the grace of God. Here's another quote. Joseph Wimmer says this, the weakness of hunger, which leads to death, brings forth the goodness and power of God who wills life. Here there is no extortion, no magic attempt to force God's will. We merely look with confidence upon our heavenly father. And through our fasting, we say gently in our hearts, father, without you, I will die. Come to my assistance. Make haste to help me. And I like that quote because really that's, that's just an expression of faith. Right? Like, I, I trust you. I believe in you. I believe that my very life, physically and certainly spiritually, is sustained only by you, Jesus. And so in my fasting, I'm just tangibly reminding myself of this truth. And I'm putting myself in a place where hopefully I can be strengthened spiritually, strengthened in my faith. But there's another component to fasting that goes beyond just what's going on in us, right? That's a huge benefit. But the other part is, is how, how God um, moves in response. So here's the fourth uh, point about fasting, which is this. God often moves 
in response to our fasting. That in times of prayer and fasting, throughout the Bible, throughout human history, you see God, God respond. Now, now, again, we have to be careful here. Uh, like that quote, what Wimmer said, it's, it's not um, magic. Fasting isn't, there's no mechanism here where if we just you know, fast long enough, then we can pull the lever and then God's gonna answer our prayers. It's not that kind of dynamic at all. What it is, is us putting ourselves in a place where we are able to receive from him spiritually. Where, where our hearts and our minds, uh, we have a clarity in terms of what God actually wants to see happen in our lives, in the lives of people around us. And so we're able to pray with, with greater urgency, greater intensity. And it's, it's his delight to respond to prayers like that. This is why you see the association in the Old Testament. In times of great distress, they, they, what do they do? They, they fast and they pray and God responds. Uh, usually it's the people of God repenting because they've forgotten about God and he's bringing them under discipline. But there's other things that happen too. Think of uh, Nineveh, probably one of the most famous times that we know Jonah finally goes into Nineveh, tells them, look, you're gonna be judged. Right? These, are, these are people who are, they worship pagan gods. They don't even really know God and yet they hear this word and God brings a sense of like the, the king. He says, this is true. And so what does he do immediately? He says to everyone, right? Tear your clothing, fast and pray that God might spare us. It, and God does. This is the amazing thing that God, God tends to move and to respond when there are those people who in genuine heartfelt faith are asking him for something that they, they need. And for us as believers, we know what we need. We've experienced it already, but we want more of it. We want other people around us to experience it more. And it's God's delight to move in response. One of the best examples of this for the church, like for the gathered church, uh, is Acts 13, uh, where this is the early church. I mean, uh, God has, the spirit of God has fallen. Uh, the apostles are preaching the gospel. People are coming to faith thousands, amazing times. And uh, you see this, this is their, it's a time of worship and fasting. Acts 13, one to three. Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, quite a group. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What is that? That's the beginning of the missionary movement. That's the beginning of all of Paul's missionary journeys, of the church going out from the little area where it was into Asia, into everywhere. How did that happen? The people of God were coming together. They were fasting. They were praying, God, what do you want us to do? And the Holy Spirit answered in power. And they had the direction they needed. Don't we want this as a church? We do, don't we? Don't we want this in our personal lives? Think of all the areas where we want to see God move, where, where he needs to move, where there's areas, there's spiritual strongholds, people we've spoken to, that we've shared the gospel. It just seems to bounce off. Areas of sin, where we're just, we, we want to, someone we know is trying to overcome it. They just, they just can't. There's, what, what should our response be? To pray, certainly, to fast and pray to remind ourselves in humility, every, we, we can't do anything significant apart from God. There are amazing stories throughout church history. When the church comes together and prays and fasts, God moves. I, I read a whole bunch of them. Here's one from South Korea. Uh, this was told by this, uh, this guy, uh, seminary president. He traveled there. 
and uh, spoke to one of the, the ministry leaders there uh, about something that had happened. They had been, uh, the, the uh, Korean church had been wanting to have a crusade. Uh, the man's name, I always forget his name, uh, Dr., Dr. Jun Kim. And uh, they had been organizing a crusade. They wanted to have a million people come together in South Korea to preach the gospel. They were organizing it. They were getting everything ready. And at the last minute, the police came and said, sorry, actually, you're, we're taking back your permits. We're just a little nervous, all these people, right? The political climate at the time. Uh, so it's not, not gonna happen. And so what was their response? Their response was to fast and pray. Uh, Dr. Kim went into the mountains. He fasted for 40 days. I'm not sure the details exactly. Clearly had water. I'm not sure what it was, but fasted for 40 days. The whole church was, was praying. Came back. Uh, they walked into the police station and the response of the police was this. Oh yeah, uh, we changed our mind. Yeah, you guys can go ahead and have the crusade. <laughs> if you look in the, the history of the church in South Korea, uh, what you see from the, uh, like the beginning of the uh, 20th century, like 1900s, to the beginning of the 2000s is an incredible growth in the church. 300,000 churches uh, were planted, about 300 churches a year. What you also learn, if you look in history, is that there were thousands of people that went through extended fasts during that time. There's one uh, statistic I read, there's this uh, overseas missions service, I think it's called, this missionary group, over 20,000 people have completed a 40-day fast. For what? For for people to know Christ, for the kingdom to go forth. For, for, and, and what do we see? We see fruitful response. There's, there's incredible story. If you speak to those who have engaged in fasting and prayer, you hear amazing stories. I just heard one after the, the gathering. A woman came up and said, yeah, I, I went through a season of fasting. I was fasting for my son, trying to give him direction. I thought he was called into missions. And as I was doing that, uh, someone spoke to me the next day and they came and spoke to me and said, I, I think I think you're called to Africa. I think you should go on a mission trip. And she's like, I didn't want that. I was praying for my son. And yet through that time, God spoke to me. I ended up in Africa on this mission trip. Why? Because God is moving. And here's the thing we need to recognize. It's not always the way that we think. But that's, that's the whole point. If we knew where we should go, we wouldn't need to fast and pray. We would just chart it out, make a flow chart. We'd make it happen, right? Those kind of things are easy for us, right? We can, we can do that kind of thing. What we can't do is evangelize our cities, what we can't do is change hearts. What we need to do is get on our knees, say, Lord, we see, we see in Scripture what you want, your heart. It's our heart too. Would you give us direction? Give us boldness. Give us power. Lead us into areas that are going to be uncomfortable, but are going to be fruitful. This is the value of, of praying and fasting. And this is, this is what we're going to do as a church. This is why as an elder team, we feel like this is important for us, uh, that, that this would be a significant time. So, uh, here are a few practical details. Before I, I close, it'll be a week of fasting and prayer, uh, February 12th to 18th. We've intentionally given a bit of a gap between this message and the week itself because I'm hoping that as individuals and kind of as families at church that we will spend some time in preparation, that we'll be asking the Lord for a couple of things. Number one, uh, what would be the most effective way for me to fast is I think the question we should be asking. Interestingly, there's no command to fast in the Bible. Right? If you're like, mm, I don't want to, you're not in sin. Right? It's fine. Clearly, it's assumed. Clearly, there's models for it. Hopefully, I've convinced you that there's going to be some benefit, but there isn't one way to do it. Uh, food is obviously the, the main one, but you may be in a situation health-wise, maybe pregnant, you're, you can't do that. That's totally fine. Uh, I'm hoping that we, in prayer, say, Lord, what would be the thing that really helps me to see myself more clearly? Maybe it's food. That, that's a big one, but maybe it is social media. 
Maybe it's online shopping. Maybe it's something else, some, some good thing that's taken up to, maybe it's exercise, oddly enough. Maybe that's just the thing that if you were to take that away, you couldn't get through the day. That, that tells us something. So in the time of preparation, we are asking, Lord, what, what is it for me that would be most helpful? Talk as a family, maybe. If it is food, right? Is it maybe a day? Maybe it's um, uh, breakfast and lunch throughout the week. And then we just come together in the evening uh, for, for a meal together. What, whatever it may be, uh, the point is that we're seeking the Lord for guidance in that. What would be effective? But also, Lord, what do you want me to be praying for? Uh, before the week, we're going to put out a guide of some things that, that as leadership we really want to be praying for. In particular, something we've been praying for a lot, future opportunities for planting, for multiplication. We want God's leading for that. But there'll also be some areas where for you personally, pray for someone that you know, right, who needs to know the Lord. Uh, pray for some, you know, something. So there'll be areas where if the Lord has put it upon your heart, we can be praying for that. You can be praying for that. And then on the Sunday, that'll be our, our potluck and prayer. We'll come together for prayer and for feasting together. So our, our hope is that this will be a really fruitful time. And our hope ultimately is that we will recognize that it is Christ who satisfies us. And that as we fast and pray, we want more of him for ourselves, for our church, for our community. So let me pray. And then we'll respond in worship today. Lord Jesus, it's so good to know that uh, there isn't something that we don't have. We, we have everything we need in you. You've gone to the cross to answer all those that threaten our destruction. Uh, you've, you've, um, you've broken all the, bind, all the bonds that, that bind us in terms of our sin. You've done everything that we need to have a life that is, that is complete, that is full. And yet, Lord, the truth of the matter is we, we don't have it fully yet. We have what we need, but we want more of it. We want more of you. We're looking forward to the, to the day when we walk into your presence and we are filled fully and completely. And so, God, I pray that this time of fasting would stir those affections all the more. I pray you'd lay upon our hearts as individuals and as a church those things that, that we need and the next best steps to accomplish them. Lord, that we would not be afraid, but that we would do so with a sober understanding that, Lord, if you're going to answer our prayers, you're going to lead us into areas that are difficult, that are, that are testing, that are trying, just like you did with your son. God, I pray we would not fear that. I pray we would want that. Lord, we'd want to go where you lead. And we'd want to humble ourselves, to, to, to look in all the, the dark recesses of our hearts and our lives, to see those, those things that are propping up our sense of happiness, Lord, and that we would get rid of them and we'd be fully satisfied in you. Lord, we pray you would move in these coming weeks and that we would hear your call, hear your voice. And Lord, in doing so, that we would be fully satisfied. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.